Hello and welcome to this episode of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. I am Lee Carlo. I am joined by Jeremy Fisk and Chapin Hemingway, the old lads, the th- the the three amigos, the uh, three kings, uh, uh, the menage a trois, <coughs> um, all back together again um, to discuss a fifty-year-old film, which, despite the fact that we are in our thirties, a fifty-year-old movie makes me feel old, especially when it's one that I've been watching most of my life, and that is the Best Picture winner from 1973, George Roy Hill's The Sting, starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford and Robert Shaw. Um, let's kick things off right away, guys. This is a seminal movie for me um, in terms of my love for movies, um, I suppose to a certain extent my interest in getting into movies. I I probably saw this movie for the first time when I was 10 or 11, something like that. And I've probably seen it, I don't know, a dozen times since then. But it has been at least probably 10 years since the last time I saw it. Uh, Jeremy, I know that you are in a similar boat as me. This was something that we shared during our childhood. I remember walking around the hallways of our high school, doing a quick little rub of our nose to let each other know we had something to say to each other. Yeah, that's Um, how cool we were. I remember, I remember saying things like "you follow." Um, well, even before that, we would play poker games and try to cheat with each other. Well, exactly. That was my next point: is that even before movies like Rounders got me into Texas Hold'em, this movie got me into straight five-card poker, um, the purest of the pokers, as we see in this movie. And we always um, used to hold the cards right up against. Yeah, our you got to hold your cards right up against your chest, and so no that's where you can cheat. Yep. So, um, needless to say, I was excited to do this revisit. Um, but Chapin, I have no idea if you had even seen this movie. Never mind your thoughts on it. So, I'm going to start there. I kind of want to get your very brief history with this movie, Chapin, um, and then your uh, let's save your initial thoughts before for my next question. But what's what's your history with the Sting? Well, I'm pretty sure that I first saw this when I borrowed the DVD from my good friend and roommate, Jeremy Fisk, when we were living at 16 Dudley Street, mm. Apartment 2 in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, which um, we recently paid a visit revisited. to. Yeah. So let's give people um, a little context. You first saw it when you were in college. Correct. Yes. That's when we lived together, when we were roommates. I know, but not everyone listening does. They should. <laughs> they should know by now. Um, what were your? Uh, what do you remember your thoughts being on that movie, Chapin? Were you like, why? Why did Jeremy recommend this? Or is it like, uh, Jeremy recommended The Office, The British Office, to me? My life has changed. Or um, somewhere in the middle. <laughs> I think it was indicative of what sort of our my relationship with you guys and film, like how what it was indicative of Jeremy and your sort of cinematic influence on me. Uh, in our friendships, um, older, um, well-written, um, you know, perhaps a little, a little lighter in tone. Um, I, I point to the apartment, uh, and sunset Boulevard as well as the, uh, as sort of other examples of that. Um, and yeah, the kind of, the kind of uh, thing you're supposed to do in film school, which is revisit the oldies and things you haven't quite seen. Okay. So 
guys, this won Best Picture in at the 1974 Oscars and uh, for the 1973 movies. Um, it. I there, I want to bring up. Where's my notes here? Um, this is obviously the 70s, which is, I think, arguably. I mean, maybe even without argument, the best decade in film history. Um, and I want to read through the Best Picture winners. 1970, Patton. 1971, The French Connection. Bookending, The Sting. 1972, The Godfather. And 1974, Godfather Two. 75 is One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. 76 is Rocky. 77 is Annie Hall. 78 is The Deer Hunter. And 79 is Kramer versus Kramer. Mm, I, I would say this, this sticks out. I love The Sting. I still love it. I'm going to put my cards on the table. I think this movie is so, so well made and so enjoyable on so many levels. We'll get into the details. But I even agree with you, Chapin. This sticks out. It doesn't feel like it has the same reverence as the rest of those movies. And I want to know why. I think movies around that time, especially around The Godfather and maybe a little bit before, you can go back to Easy Rider and that sort of ilk where you know the independent auteur started taking over this is still a bit of a throwback to old hollywood it's got two movie stars charismatic movie stars it's fun it's sort of upbeat um filmed on a stage yeah you compare this to the godfather or uh you know the apocalypse now or deer hunter other things with much more pathos and gravitas in the filmmaking then yeah it's gonna stick out as sort of um uh older school version of movie making but I, that that doesn't make it bad it just makes it different and it, it also got you know obviously things aren't a, a direct line like there's going to be there's going to be some overlap i mean just when easy rider comes out doesn't mean every movie after it's not going to be sort of a uh a brand new cinematic achievement. They're still going to get some of the old school, um, you know, John Ford type, uh, older, older movies that are, you know, more of the classical, um, uh, classical productions. And this is one of them. And it's, it's a super fun one. I just, I really, really enjoyed it. I think that, I think that is definitely the answer on, on, on one, on on why it stands out in one aspect essentially like it's stylistically the genre the the people involved like kind of a it's it's not part of the shift that the 70s represented in movie making but the other question i have in terms in terms of it standing out is like why is why doesn't it why isn't it looked back upon the same way as those 70s movies is it because those other 70s movies were so like groundbreaking and they change cinema or is yeah, it that I mean, people right don't consider now, this movie as good? No, I, I, well, I, I, I think it's because those other movies were so sort of different. Um, this is just a really, really good script and really good performances and a fun movie. And, um, that's different, I think, than what started popping up at that time. And well, yeah, I, I mean, I think, the 70s, uh, Jeremy, you and I took a great class at when we were in L.A. at Emerson on 70s that was based on really the main text was Easy Rider's Raging Bull, Bulls, which is a great um, <clears throat> book and kind of uh, covers this whole era. But I think 
you know, even a film like French Connection, which feels a little bit like blockbustery, and when mentioned with all the rest of these winners, I mean, it, they all these movies have something to say. I don't know that the Sting has anything to say. Yeah, it's fun. It's really well acted. It's really well written. Uh, I think it's beautifully shot. Um, I love the um, art direction and production design in it, but Which I don't won, know this movie. Both won Oscars. I don't know this movie is saying anything, even less than so like the, a movie like The French Connection, or I mean, even like a, a movie like Rocky, like which feels more <clears throat> smoltsy yeah, in Hollywood. But, but Rocky's Rocky, such a underdog story. Like people relate to the character. Yeah. Like, are you even relating to the characters in this movie? Like, no way, not even a little bit. You want to be them, I think, in many ways. But yeah, it's no, not relatable. It's a really but good even point. Even like Butch Cassidy feels like a more of the time movie than this. I mean, of that which what I can remember of Butch Cassidy. I haven't seen. Yeah, it I well, but. I just but recently Jeremy watched that. Yeah. yeah, to me and that's was... like a that's very much to me in my memory. And Jeremy, you can confirm or deny this. It, like a '60s peck and paw violent western. Type I mean, of... it came out the same year. I think it's the Wild Bunch, but it's not very violent. It's it's a lot of inference of violence yeah there's a lot of inference of violence you don't see that many people you know from a distance it's not like uh you know the well, the wild end bunch or peck and yeah. bot well the end is just a freeze frame right but it's the inference of violence there yeah too, yeah right yeah um but yeah I'm, with, sure, I'm sure you thought of 400 blows one of your favorite films jeremy when, yeah when you saw yeah that. that was a big influence on it um well, the funny thing is when Jeremy when, when we said the inference of violence the first thing I thought of was Scorsese talking to Larry David in Curb Your Enthusiasm <laughs> that, that's where my, you did too many takes Marty. too many takes Marty too no too it's not it's, it's too much violence you need the inference of violence uh, yeah with Butch Cassidy um, I was actually a little bit disappointed in Butch Cassidy I think it because the bike scene goes on for like eight minutes I also don't know how much that movie had to say. And it's sort of the start, of course, of like the buddy, the buddy action movies, uh, which this sort of followed up on the success of that. Same but director, same, same two stars. Yeah, exactly. And it and introduced us to Robert Redford. But uh, I was, yeah, I, I was, I was kind of surprised how much it felt like it dragged a little bit. Um, yeah. All right. I'm going to give a quick description of The Sting in case anybody hasn't seen it. Um, I would like to, guys, avoid spoilers here because I do think that The Sting is a movie that a lot of our listeners may not have seen yet. And I do think that it is important that you watch this movie fresh. How about, how about we just give people a warning? I mean, we have to talk about the movie for Christ's sakes. I know, but I think that we can talk about this movie without spoiling stuff. But we'll see. If we get to a point where we, where, where we really need to, we will put in a, uh, a very clear spoiler alert before we spoil it, not after like we usually do. Um, so this movie takes place in, uh, is it 1929 um, in Chicago and Joliet, Illinois. Johnny Hooker, played by Robert Redford, is a small-time con artist working with two of his buddies. And they run a scam on somebody that is carrying money for a um, a bigger money racket that is run by a man named Bo- Doyle Lonigan, played by Robert Shaw. For those of you who don't know who Robert Shaw is, he is Quint in Jaws. Um, when 
word gets out that they stole this racket's money. Um, a hit is put out on all of their lives. One of them is killed, and Johnny Hooker goes on the run, and he meets Henry Gondorf, who is a somewhat washed-up big con player, long con player. And they decide to work together to con Doyle Lonigan, um to get back at him for killing Johnny Hooker's partner, Luther. So that's what this movie is. And it's... I'm trying to I'm trying to think of the best way to describe kind of its its genre like in comparison to something else like it's a con artist movie which we've seen others before but like it's also a little bit of a comedy it's a little bit of an adventure movie like it's a little bit of a sports movie like what like how would you describe this how would you describe how this movie plays what, what is the formula that this like that this very very good script follows I mean, it definitely, what I think of first and foremost is the con, con artist part of it. But wouldn't that, is it, I feel like that's a little bit of a subgenre, or maybe it's not, but. I mean, genre is all fluid, like. Sure. It's, it's hard to pin, pin stuff down with what is what with genre, but. It's, um, like, it's like gender. Exactly. G- gender, genre. Um, oh, what was that noise? That was me uh, opening a bottle. Uh, sounded like it. Um, I already know how to drink. Yeah, and it ha- I mean, also, that's a good, like, had great introduction to characters, too. Uh, both of them. I, I mean, mean, this is how you open a movie. I mean, it's it's so good. It's so upbeat. It's so fast-paced. There's so much information crammed into the first 10 minutes of this movie that if you blink, you could miss it. Like, you could miss some things, and I think that this movie absolutely rewards rewatching. Like, even now, I've seen this movie, like I said, a dozen times, and going through it, I'm just like, oh, I okay, I, I see what they're talking about here. I see what they're doing here. And it's it's really enjoyable in that way. Yeah, it's funny. Like, the one thing about watching it this time, and I don't think you should change it, and I'll I'll explain why. But I, I think Chapin alluded to it a little bit, just sort of how I don't know what what the word was he used. Chapin maybe upbeat, like a movie like this is. Um, you know, you are dealing with criminals, a lot of them, uh, and it's interesting. And the thing that stood out to me is that, like, you know. Every one of those like two hundred guys that are in on this con are professional con artists that they make their living, you know, lying to other people. But if you get them together, you have to fully trust all two hundred of them. Yeah, that they're That's all real close and buddies, and they never sort of question that. Um, you know, every single person they hire, you know, is all above board to to just fool this one person. So you don't think that that... I think it works. It's an interesting point. Do you think, like, so there's this scene. There's a scene where um, uh, Kid Twist, played by Harold Gould, who I don't know if you know him or recognize, but he's excellent in this movie. And he's sort of like a second-in-command to Gondorf, to Paul Newman's Gondorf. And he goes and he essentially, like, talks to this guy and gets a list of people who are in town who are, like, 
uh, reputable con artists that they can that they can hire for this con. And for some reason, I think that was enough to solve that problem. Like just that scene. I, my point in bringing that up was that the tone of this movie, the sort of uh, upbeat, happier notes of this movie, work because you need them to work that you need to believe all these guys are sort of above board and are, are pooling to get their resources together for one common goal. Well, here's where I questioned this time around whether it does work entirely. Now I, I, this isn't to say change the tone of the movie, but Doyle Lonigan is supposed to be this very cold person. And there's a line where it says, this is, a guy, uh, Gondorf says, this is a guy who will, who will kill a grifter over an, a, a stack of money that wouldn't support him for two days. Essentially, he doesn't care about killing him. Then uh, Lonigan says later, he's like, this is a, over there. That's a guy I've known since I was six. If he found out that I could be beat by a lousy grifter, I'd have to kill him. Like, because everybody would try to move in on my operation. Like, he's supposed to be this very cold, calculated, no-nonsense guy. And I don't know that he's ever fully scary enough because of what you're talking about, that upbeat nature of the movie. Like, do you ever really fear him like you do some of the great villains of the 70s well, or any era? I also, era? the other thing that came up this time was I also, I did, I, I believed him, and I thought it was a good performance by Robert Shaw, and I kind of want to get Chapin's great, thoughts yeah. on it. But what I didn't believe is that that character would necessarily go down this road with these people. Hmm, yeah. Like, I think he has too much money and too much respect to go and put even a half a million dollars on. It's a quick line where he said, where they they realize that like all these guys are suckers for the ponies, but it's a pretty quick throwaway. So, Caitlin, what do you think of Robert Shaw in this? I mean, uh, knowing him most famously from Jaws. Uh, Yeah, I mean, uh, he's good. Uh, It's a rather rather one note performance. Um, It's a pretty bad Irish accent, I think, which I don't know why he's doing it in this. Like just give him a Chicago accent, or just have him well, do. I mean, Robert British, yeah, he's British. <laughs> Robert Shaw doesn't need to. He doesn't seem to adhere to any accent. For for I mean, he you know Quint doesn't seem to have any, you know, trace of New England accent. He could just do what you know, just do Quint or whatever. But um, I that was I found that a little bit distracting. It's it's an okay performance. Um, I mean, I was really blown away by Paul Newman. He wasn't nominated for this. I know Redford was. Redford was good too. But I really. I'm I'm less familiar with Paul Newman's work and um you know god his eyes are just piercing you know I mean yeah the I mean Newman and Redford are handsome guys yeah hot take well speaking um, of handsome take. the opposite of that the women in this <laughs> oh, I feel Jesus. like okay I f- but Eileen but Brennan I feel, is so good I know as but Billy. I feel like there's a very it, specific casting for the ladies in this um and i think it was like trying to harken back to like what we think of the 20s or something but it was 38 right uh when this takes place yes no it's 29 or 28 yeah it's it's during the 1938 it's during the depression great depression um so Demetra arliss plays loretta and we will avoid talking too much about her character but um She's a love interest of sorts. And there's, I, I've always, I've actually thought about this in the past too, because I don't find her particularly attractive. 
Um, she's working at a diner, and Johnny Hooker, Robert Redford, Robert Redford, 19, Robert Redford. That's when it takes place. Six is when this movie's set. Okay. Um, Robert Redford in the seventies, perhaps one of the most handsome people alive. And this is all very superficial. I understand that, but he kind of it takes you, know, you out of eyes it. eyes her. And I think there's there is there is an argument to be made that he, you know he says it's two a.m. two a.m. and I don't know anybody, and like she's the only like this is just all he's looking for is some companionship. But, but also, then like, the, on the flip side, it's supposed to be like a love attraction, and it just doesn't really work. What's the point of that character? It's like as soon as he gets close to her, she's. She's. It's like it's. It seems like totally irrelevant. I, I mean, I know it's like oh, Lonergan's trying to assassinate him, but and so okay. So there was a couple things that I had questions about. So does Lonergan know that the guy he's working with is the guy he's trying to kill? No, no, right? no, no. But if there's any any communication, he, they would have figured that out. He yeah. just has an address for him, and so they like they. Well, placed, I don't even think he does. I think like they just. Like he's got his hitmen that go and find Luther and kill him, and then they go to Hooker's place in Joliet, and he's not there. They track him. They follow him to Chicago. They track him down to Chicago. I mean, I don't know how private investigators hired hitmen found people back in those days. But so they know where he lives, and they know of him. They just don't know what he looks like. Yeah, but how? Because how would you? I I don't know. I mean, they placed that woman there. I guess he, she lives next to him. It just, it just seemed like very far-fetched and pointless to the story. And also she looks like um, she looks like Al Pacino's lover at Dog Day Afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Same actor. <laughs> um, I mean, Jeremy's right. It's, he's true. I mean, most of the time it's the other way around where you're like, oh, yeah, I think women really find James Gandolfini to be extremely attractive i mean i get that but like so well look i think across the board the performances in this movie are outstanding i mean you can nitpick at stuff like robert shaw's accent and things like that but i think he's you know i think he's very good in this movie but you and newman and redford are both great but then charles durning as snyder is so good eileen brennan as billy is so good and then all of these guys that are participating in the con are like, you know, acting as actors, essentially acting within their characters. And I think pulling it off to like such great lengths that you're completely convinced that this con would work and that these people are, are professionals at this. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I, even this time around, I found that part to be believable and you, you, after you've seen it 12 times, it feels like that would sort of fall away. Um, all right. We, I, I want to I wanna be able to dig in more to this movie. So I want to perhaps put a kind of general spoiler alert here in case we end up diving into some stuff. Um, Jeremy. Yeah. Was there any chance that you didn't like something about this when you watched it? This time around? Like when you were going into it, like was there any chance that like because to me we've we've come across movies like this before. For me, 
there's, there's no you guys couldn't convince me of anything that's wrong yeah. <laughs> like no i mean i like, I, I actually worried. get Chapin's i actually point on shaw like things like that are okay but like I was worried, worried I was going to, yeah, I was worried. I was worried I was going to be disappointed in it and it just wasn't going to work and it was going to be sort of hokey. That's what I thought. I thought it just wasn't going to have the grit to it that made the story work. Um, I think maybe I had a inkling of that too, but it's it, the script is too smart and yeah, too the, well written. It really is. It really is. And when you talk about the acting, like it's, it's, it's like that Reservoir Dog scene. There's acting within acting, you know? Yeah. Um, oh, the Tim Roth bit, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that that's always... Like, that adds a layer of, of interest to it. Um, and, you you know, you're... you're I, I did have that issue that Chapin had as far as Shaw, like, if anyone had communicated anything, they would have figured out they're talking to the same person, but you kind of get over that real quick. Um, but to answer your question, yeah, I was I was nervous. I was nervous that it wa- wasn't going to hold up. So I had a question that maybe you guys can help me with, and maybe, or maybe you can't. So they plan this con to... Um, they basically set up a fake bookie place where you can bet on horses, on horse races. Um, they get something they get this device where you know would work back then where they essentially get the results of the races before they're broadcast so they can tell Lonigan who won the race and he can go bet on the race I don't think they they actually got it before it was broadcast I think they got it as it was broadcast he just he they just, just realized knew. they just delayed the broadcast inside the building exactly no. All right, right, right. Yeah, the yeah. Room. Inside yes. the room, but they made their they, own broadcast, and they made their yeah. own. Yeah, they that knew he. They knew wouldn't. he wasn't like sitting by the radio listening. Right at that diner. Why didn't that's he why just check put, his? I don't. Why didn't he just check his phone? He could yeah. just check his phone. Yeah, or his, his yeah. FanDuel app. Um, it's so, sort of a simple con. I mean, once you think about it. So their plan is to convince him that they can get the correct winner, and then dupe him out of half of a million dollars that he that he will supply because he has you know he's a banker and he has access to the money now two things happen in this move in this movie that disrupt their plan it makes me wonder what their plan was all along the first is when Shaw Lonigan insists on meeting Johnny Hooker's partner who he says, like, this guy has a connection with Western Union, and he insists on meeting him. And then when when they do, in fact, meet, Kid Twist, the other character who plays his partner, says, like, oh, we've got this other guy who's going to supply the money. He can get it right away. He's going to give us $250,000. And then Shaw is convinced. He's like, let's do it one more time. If I'm convinced, I'll put up the money myself. I'll get it. I'll do a half a million dollars on odds greater than three to one. So my first question is like, how did they know that they were going to get to a point where Shaw would offer to put up the money? I don't think they knew that. The other question, go ahead. Because I think that was part of the plan all all along, because at the time Redford has that guy in his back pocket and he's already set him up as the, the, the imaginary financier right? as the guy who's going to give them the money, but he has to wait a week. He knows that. And he's already introduced that to Shaw. Right. 
And so they just they I think they just probably just sorry gave him we should be clear to to Lonigan. One of the characters' names is Shaw. Oh, <laughs> so sorry. Paul Lonigan, Newman. Yeah. Paul Newman plays Henry Gondorf. His alias is Shaw. And Robert Shaw plays Doyle Lonigan. So every time we say Shaw, I'm like, yeah, that's who we're talking about. But I just want to make sure we're clear. Um, the other thing that happens is eventually Gondorf realizes that um, S- Lieutenant Schneider is chasing after Johnny Hooker for giving him some counterfeit money. So he makes a plan to get Snyder off his bat by enlisting some additional con artists to pretend to be the FBI trying to take down Gondorf. Now, as it turns out at the end, and again, this is a spoiler alert, the FBI busts in and and tells Snyder to get Lonigan out of there after the con has been completed and supposedly Hooker and Gondorf are dead. Well, they could have just so, busted in the FBI without the... What what's the detective's name or the without Snyder? Snyder, yeah, and have somebody else take Lonigan out. Was that always the plan to bring them in and to have them kill each other and assume they're dead, or did I that think, change? No, if that I changed, think, what was the original plan to get I mean, Lonigan? I don't out know of his if mind? there ever was an original plan, but if there was an original plan in the well, world the, of this the plan story, was that, the plan is the is the mistake about the sh- about yeah he bet it showing wrong. or whatever. So he bet it wrong. And so they knew they would never have to give back the money because he just placed it wrong. So, but like, let's just like play this out. Like he throws a huge fit. What do they do? Like go to the bo- like the well, betting they, they commission. Got, they got say, rid of the. That's why they got rid of the goons. Like his goons. Yeah. So they couldn't. So they could throw could him out physically. Throw him out or whatever. Right. Okay. Uh, know what's interesting about this movie? Lee? You're right. This movie is perfect. Um, I've been. I when I first saw this, I kind of had been chasing this sort of screenplay with, you know, uh, con artists and twists and uh, payoffs since The Sting, and like I don't know if I've ever really hit that sort of experience again um, in any. Well, they movie. don't make movies quite like this really anymore. Yeah, um, and make... like any any con artist movie that's been out since is like just pale so much in comparison. What other con artist movies? What was that Nicolas Cage one? Matchstick Men or Matchstick something? Matchstick Men, that yeah. Ridley Scott movie, and that, then there was another yeah. one with Ed Burns and Rachel Vice. Um, yeah. Does Someone... do the Ocean movies count as con the Ocean? Artists? The Ocean they do. movies, that's close. yeah, that's that as would close be the closest. As they come. Yeah, that's a good good pick, Japen. Yeah, I, somebody's got to make another good con artist well, movie. There's so much that, fun. I think the and Ocean Oceans movies are is, fun is too. perfect because you have the big movie stars, like the tone is is right. Like it's, I think that is your, your modern day comparison for sure. At least Ocean's 11. I don't know if I ever saw the other ones, which supposedly aren't actually that bad, but. Yeah, 12's good. I think um, they're due. I think they're due for another one. I'm going to, I'm going to just, because of the nature of this movie, and I, I'm curious what you guys think about like the, the, you know, the wipes, the editing style, which it won best editing, um, and then also like the title cards and stuff separating the scenes. Um, I like that. But I'm gonna steal a, I'm gonna steal a thing from the rewatchables in terms of the most rewatchable scene because you have like very obvious scenes. You have that opening, like small con. 
you have the poker scene on the train you have you know the you have the the scene where they have to um give them the shutout essentially like I think to me they don't the have first, enough money the, to it's the first setup the first time that they introduce the whichever get what that's called in the sort of like the prestige the whatever um but like the when they well, when the they're prestige is another one that could compare when they're getting together the team for the first time and everybody's got to play their part um is a pretty great scene so the first time he bets makes a bet right right and you have you because know, you kind of you kind of as like an audience member and as someone who has been a while since I've seen this, you sort of forget exactly. You don't really under like you don't really know exactly what they're setting up. Like you know yeah, that they're setting up true. betting, and but then finally you understand. Oh, okay, so they're this is like a OTB or whatever, um, and uh, they're and you can kind of like immediately see how this might work, right? Like. Right, you don't know the con. It's all that a first facade. It's all a facade, and they've like, but it now it looks like this real place, um, which is what movies is too. Interestingly, brilliant. Enough. It is so saying, funny. It like, is saying something. I was watching, and Lydia's seen this before, but she was watching a little bit of it with me, and she's seeing that scene where they're setting up the 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 place, and like, how much money are they spending <laughs> to get this set up? And right. it's just like a movie set. But they even talk about, like, they even ask the guy, like, how do you want to do this? Do you want a flat rate and we'll pay you now? Or do you want a percentage of the take? And he hears who the mark is and he's like, you guys aren't going to beat him. Pay me now. But, like, I just think it's, like, it's not necessarily about the money, I think, is a little bit of what this. I mean, they talk about it even. Like, it's not going to be enough. Like, you know, Hooker doesn't even bother taking his take. I don't know why this this got to me this time, but even like the guy who was like flat rate, uh, he could have said something. Like, there's so many people. All it took was one of those, like seventy to hundred guys, to then backstab them and be like, "Hey, by the way, if you give me this money, I can tell you yeah. what's happening." Well, the suspension of disbelief for the the con is as strong as it is for Mission Impossible Seven. So, <laughs> right. Um, which I, I, I was going to propose to you guys that we do that film first um, because I, I do see some interesting comparisons, but I don't want to, if I were to tell you, it might spoil some of my thoughts on Mission Impossible. Oh, interesting. Dead Reckoning Part 1. But okay, I guess we'll I'll save, bring those up then. We'll save them then, yeah. Um, okay, I got, I, got a, I got a thing for you guys. Okay. Which kind of touches on that. Um, they don't really write movies like this anymore, like this good. Why is that? Like, uh, are they it, TV shows now? Maybe, like, maybe they are. I don't know. Well, I think part of it this is was, this was like this the first or second biggest movie of this year. Um, it's a it's one of the, it's like the twentieth biggest movie ever made, adjusted for inflation. Um, it's it's not like people don't like this stuff, you know. Well, I think I think the the uh, what's the the internet hurts the twists and well there's that but i i think the tone of it it's like people it's hard for people not to get make characters give characters more dimensions which Um, is why i think it's a tv show or something now like but you know like they did at least a miniseries it's like a four episode miniseries or something they did it in the oceans movies so you still can do it like the ocean movies are i would say are well written but i guess i don't mean like i don't mean to say that like 
forego let's like, let's be very specific here forego the character development forego the the plot the twists but like just just like the sheer dialogue and the way it is trusted in the audience to if not understand it as it's being delivered eventually understand what they're talking about uh i just think is just feels so unlike films today and maybe that's just because we've been seeing a lot of dumb summer movies lately but it just it just doesn't it 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 feels so smartly well written just the just talking to just the talking with characters yeah i think i think there's i think movies are unable to rely on the charisma of its leads anymore like there's only a handful of actors that can pull that off and you know cruz is one of them um, I, you know, honestly, DiCaprio's not even really one of them. Like I wouldn't necessarily describe DiCaprio as charismatic. Like he, he draws an audience for other reasons. And I think it's, he's built a reputation that like, he's only going to make movies that are good with good directors and people have learned to understand that. But there's not movie stars that the way that there were when Newman and Redford were at their peaks and you could and, and audiences were comfortable sitting for two hours and watching those two guys talk to each other because like every scene they're in is so charismatic like especially t- when they're together for whatever reason I think about the scene right before Gondorf goes to play poker and he's shuffling the cards and I had to go back sidebar I had to go back and watch it again Is there's got to be a cut in there because they show him like doing all these card tricks just on the hands and then they pan up i, I noticed that to yeah. newman maybe he practiced but well then why shoot it like that why shoot it like that close up on the hands when it's obviously somebody else doing it i was trying to find a cut anyway no even that cre- scene <laughs> where there's not a lot of dialogue the two of them just kind of looking at each other being movie stars in this like the middle right or at the right before this movie is really about to kick off like there's an absence of that now i think from actors there's there's not movie stars anymore you know there's obviously great actors but it's not the same well i also didn't get to say my favorite scene most rewatchable scene which was uh probably It probably would be the poker game, but I also I also I would say scene. a close second would be a close second and then a closer third. A close second would be Gondor's introduction. Um, you know, we I had to know. do that to you on our most recent trip. Yeah, I already know how to drink. And then yeah. the third is when they're in the back room, uh, trying to devise the con, and Snyder oh, yeah. comes in. Um, you know, anyone been passing any bad money, it would be busting in on the police that you, uh, yeah, busting in the police. chief of police. Yeah. So, yeah. No, what's interesting too is that this is 1973, this came out, and uh, a year later, one of the greatest screenplays ever written in uh, Chinatown, Chinatown came out. I mean, yeah. So, like, I listed the best picture winners, but, like, obviously the 70s, you have, you have Taxi Driver, you have, network um just this year that the sting won best picture you have uh you have the exorcist you have serpico you have badlands american graffiti mean streets paper moon like it, you look at the the oscars um for 1973 and the sting 
it the American Graffiti was nominated, and I think The Exorcist was nominated, and then two other movies that um, haven't really stood up were nominated. But you look at Redford's um, Redford nominated for Best Actor. He lost to Jack Lemmon for Save the Tiger, which I've never seen. Um, but the other nominees were Jack Nicholson for The Last Detail, Al Pacino for Serpico, and Marlon Brando for Last Tango in Paris. I mean, you've got Lemon, Pacino, Nicholson, Brando, and Redford. Like, this is the height of, like, the greatest generation of movie stars ever. Yeah. And uh, yet, so, like, this movie wins seven Oscars, including screenplay, picture, and director. And I think it's a little bit of an afterthought when it comes to the 70s movies. Well, I mean, when you're naming those type of movies, it's almost like whatever. It's just if you and if, I, if this I was seventh it, prize, you'd be happy. Yeah, I think it deser- I think it deserves to be. Like I know you guys like this, and it's a great movie, but it's not. You know, I mean, I think what you brought up, Chapin, about it not having something to say is a big factor. Like any, it, a movie doesn't have to have something to say, but a cent- but if it doesn't. Inherently, it's not going to stand the test of time or like, or actually, that's not the right way to say it. It's not going to be as as important over the course well, of time. I wouldn't even as say movies that. that I mean, do I think have this, something to say. I think this movie is a little timeless in that sense. But I do, you know. But it's what, not important. What, like What movies were doing in the 70s were saying something. It was the rise of the auteur in American cinema. And um, it was important that movies be kind of, you know, divorced from commercial success. Like, they, they, like it wasn't, you know, they, this was sort of like the rebuke to the studio system. And, you know, this this movie feels very much like put this actor with this actor with this great director. And it's a great movie, um, but it's it's not, this isn't, an, uh, this isn't like a novel. This isn't an insight into George whatever the director's soul or anything George like Roy that. Hell, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, but I also think it's like in no way is the sting important. It's not necessarily important to film history. Cause it, I, I don't know that it really influenced anything. Um, you know, the only thing you can maybe make the argument of is, uh, with its importance is like movie stardom and like how powerful Newman and Redford stardom was you pointed out how how successful this movie was. But when you yeah, look but back at the 70s, go- you're talking about The Godfather and how influential it was in Coppola's career and actors like Pacino and then De Niro in the second one and Brando coming from the 50s and the 60s. And then you look but at- But that was like- nothing new though. Like they, movie stardom was huge in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s right. and the 60s and now in the 70s. It's almost like towards the the- that's about where end. it started to end. Yeah. yeah. And Chapin, you brought up like, why don't they write movies like this anymore? I mean, it's kind of a stupid answer, but part of it is it's just fucking hard to. Um, like I'm looking at, uh, it was written by David S. Ward. He never wrote another movie. A third or a fourth as good as The Sting. And he went on to write The Sting 2. Yeah, which Major I've never League. Well, Major League is in, good. It's good, but we're, you know. We're, yeah, that's true. Uh, Sleepless in Seattle is his second best screenplay. And that's it, man. Like, that's, you know, it's just, he couldn't even repeat it. I mean, so, to me, those those credits, The Sting 2, for, I never saw that. I, I Part of me doesn't want to. Doesn't have Redford and Newman in it or anything. 
but and Major League is a funny movie, but like Sleepless Seattle is a pretty clever script. Like that to me t- says exactly the point that Chapin is asking. It's like this is a a good screenwriter that can write a well structured script, but the demand for it isn't there or something. Like what happened? Because it would be great to see that guy keep working. Like those are all. But maybe he couldn't repeat it. Maybe he has a bunch that just never maybe. got to the after he wrote the Sting too, and everyone's like, "Oh, he couldn't do it again. Never mind." Did he get forced to write the Sting too? Though I wonder. Um, he he's written some pretty well known movies, I would say. Anyways, uh, no, I. Okay, but I mean, I agree with that in a sense, Jeremy. But I also think like. These scripts are out there. Somebody's writing good scripts. They're just not being made. I think that's definitely true. I think it has more to. It has less to do with whether or not the writers can repeat their work, and more to do with whether or not there's any interest in, um, in making these things. Although, so, I mean, he, I mean, he has hasn't worked much at all. He wrote. He didn't write another script. He wrote the program, which is a sports movie, in 1993, and then didn't write another script until Flyboys in in 2006. So he might just not be working. But um, yeah, I had another point about about this that I can't now. I can't remember just in terms of like this movie's place in history. Like I just think who? Oh, I remember who. Who are who are the two stars in this movie if it's made now? Exact script, exact same script. It's never been made before. It's not a remake. The script comes across whatever Netflix's desk. They're gonna make it. They green light it. Who okay. who directs this? I, I just want to tell you the directing age. it. And <laughs> I, I just want to tell you the ages. Paul Newman was our age when he made this movie. <laughs> I know it's insane. He's, he, he seemed much older. Yeah, he looked. He older. does. He, he looked does. like he fifty. He's drinking a lot. So uh, who's who's in this? Is Matt Damon feels right. I don't know. Like uh, not anymore. He, not he's anymore. too old now. He's he's getting too old and fat. It's not. So a... who's who's in this? I, I do think that's part of the problem, and I think Oceans is a is a very good comparison to this movie because, you know, it took essentially Clooney and Pitt at the right time and made them the leads of this kind of con movie, and it's very much of a, a Newman and Redford dynamic um but i I do think but that movie also needed maybe and maybe this movie needed newman and redford like that movie needed clooney and pitt i think to be successful and there's not like even clooney and brad pitt aren't box office draws anymore like that it's just not the way movies work who is the who's a box office draw now, actors wise? Cruise, Cruise, like, Leo. Is, is Cruise Leo. even anymore, or is it just the movies Cruise is making? I think like, Cruise is. I think he is after Top Gun. I do too. I, I think he, and, I, I think he's a, a draw, and he's also a liability, which we can talk about in the next one. But and um, DiCaprio seems to be. Um. Yeah, that's very it'll be interesting. Few... Like DiCaprio has now done two movies in a row with streaming services so we don't really know how that is holding up anymore um it, well, will smith will smith is not anymore robert downey jr is not anymore like 
We don't know well, how think, any um, of it is the, holding the up rock, anymore. The rock is not anymore. I think the uh, like uh, four, fifteen years ago, like the body of lies, uh, like um, Crow and Crow. Crow and DiCaprio would be a good. But now even DiCaprio is probably too old even to be the Paul Newman role. Well, maybe not, but. Yeah, it's hard to think of some like modern actors that would be. I mean, I, Chalamet doesn't fit this. Like, no, he's no, too nerdy. He's a pussy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I love how we all love Chalamet, and we're always just like, "Yeah, he's a pussy." <laughs> um, well, this is part of the problem, and we don't have to get into this, but like the financial structure of movies and streaming and all that is clearly not working right now. Um, in any, oh, here cause, we, cause here nobody's we go. nobody's working right well, now. Well, it's true, Chapin. We like, go, we can't. <laughs> It's like they have to. There, the fact that SAG's on strike and is probably going to be on strike for a long time um, goes to show you that the financials just aren't working. And I don't know what the what the resolve is of it, but uh, movie stars are certainly not the answer anymore. We'll just put it that way. Well, streaming service would disagree with you because they're sure paying a lot for those guys. And not anymore. Not paying anyone anything. Yeah. All right. Um, parting thoughts, guys. Uh, I had a ton of fun. I had a ton of fun rewatching it. I had a lot more fun rewatching this than Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which I think is, you know, cinematically maybe a better movie. It's it's really really well shot. Um, those characters are are a little bit more interesting, but it's slow moving and it's not nearly as fun fun and clever as this movie is. Um, yeah, I, like I said, I, there was a very slim chance that I was that there was going to be any issue I had with this movie, um, just because like that op- like as soon as that music starts at the beginning, the nostalgia is just overwhelming for me. But my biggest takeaway was just really how incredibly good this screenplay is and how smart the writing is. The acting is great. I've always known the acting was great. I've always known it's a fun movie. Um, but it's it's so well written and so sharp, and it's two hours and nine minutes. But it's efficient. It's I, I don't think it's too long. There are a couple moments. There's some that that night before, like the last con, like the final end of the con, is maybe a little draggy. But you know, that's a major nitpick for me. I, I have kind of an esoteric. <clears throat> observation um we all we forgot to mention this but we all got together over the fourth of july weekend um and we we watched jaws together or parts of it together um and you know i i think uh to our audience who might not know a ton about lighting uh you know right now like if you go like and i and i just filmed a commercial right but right before i jumped on a plane to come see you guys and on that commercial we had lights and we do massive amounts of what we call diffusion right so we take lights big bright bulby lights and we put massive amounts of diffusion for them so we put these big like silks and Lee please don't yawn when I'm talking about this it has nothing to do with you talking about it it's late and you you blow and basically you're basically just trying to soften light but what I noticed um, in Jaws and confirmed by some behind the scenes 
stuff uh, uh, pictures and on the sting is that they just would just shine these lights at people. They wouldn't put anything in front of it. They wouldn't soften it. It was just a bulb shining at people, but it still looks cool. You see these really hard shadows. And if we were to look at like one of the ways these, one of these frames from the sting and we were like trying to make a commercial now, we'd be like, Oh God, we got to cut that shadow down. But it shadows still looks in life, cool. babe. There's shadows in life, baby. So just like, you know, there's these interesting techniques. Like we've like we've developed, um, you know, this beautiful fabric, and we bounce light in all these different ways to really soften the light. And I love soft light. Um, uh, and you know, see Roger Deakins for more information on on how beautiful that can be. But um, you know, these movies have a look, and I think that comes a lot from the fact that they just didn't use diffusion on lights. Do you think that's a microcosm of a lot of the problems we have with with cinema nowadays? is that we've sort of uh, uh, filtered everything down to make it, uh, you know, so that the most amount of people can enjoy it. That's an interesting, an interesting point. I like that. All right, well, that's going to... Is that that this thing is... Okay, go ahead. No, what were you going to say? I was going to wrap it up. This this thing is a very... um, a very universally enjoyable film, one would think. It definitely is. So, go ahead, Lee. Sorry. That's going to wrap it up for this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. I've been Lee Carlo with Jeremy Fisk and Chapin Hemingway. Join us next week for... I see... This is how I know this episode's never going to get released. It is. It is. I promise. Four jacks. Look... We can't promise that these episodes are recorded in order, okay? This is a little behind the curtain of podcasting, okay? There are certain things that are done that you wouldn't understand. You owe me 15 and, million, pal. Um, yeah, join us next week for the whatever movie's coming out September 24th. Okay. <laughs> Must have left my wallet in my room. Don't hand me into that crap. When you come to a game like this, you bring your money. How do I know you won't take a powder? No, 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 no. All right, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll send a boy around to your room in five minutes. You better have the money or it's going to be all around Chicago that you're welched. You won't be able to get a game of jacks. Cash me in for the rest of these problems.